This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Today's guest is Srikanth Viswanathan. He is the founder and portfolio manager at SVN Capital. Uh, Srikanth and I actually have a mutual connection through Chris Mayer, and um, I know that Chris will get brought up in this podcast. And Chris, if you're listening, um, you've got a pretty cool network of investors, and I'm just, you know, I'm totally stoked to to meet another one of them. So we're going to talk a lot in this podcast about idea generation, idea sourcing, XUS investing. We'll talk about Shree's um, background and how that positioned him well to start the fund, as well as early mistakes and big winners he's had in the past. So Shree, thanks so much for coming on the show. Brandon, thanks a lot for having me. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to bring me on here. I've listened to many of your previous podcasts, some fantastic uh, guests, and I'm honored to be on this one. Appreciate so let's start, that time. Let's start, let's start with what we discussed before we hit record here, which was your weekly chats with Chris Mayer. You call them State of the Investment Union. I think that's so fun. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so Chris and I, Chris Mayer and I have been friends for many years, and um it's an important point, right? Um, as one man investment committee, um, sometimes there are questions about how does one evaluate certain opportunities? And even after it's invested, how does one consider the pros and cons? And, uh, you know, for me, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, I'm sure Chris will agree with this as well. Um, you need to, 
you need to find that individual or individuals um, who have similar sort of a, an approach to approach to life. Um, and that obviously involves similar sort of an approach to investing as well. And so, um, you know, our practice of uh, sort of meeting up and talking about ideas, um, it started way before um, I launched my fund or Chris launched his fund. It's just that we have sort of uh, formalized a process where, you know, I termed it state of the investment universe, S-O-T-I-U. So we just bring up ideas, um, evaluate the pros and cons. Uh, most of the time we just pass on it. Um, certain names where I may have a positive bias, you know, he may be quick to kind of, um, you know, uh, bring up the uh, bring up the negatives and vice versa. So it's been exceptionally helpful to have that um, bouncing board. What were some names on that bouncing board, maybe that have entered the portfolio in the past, or some names that have gotten to the watch list? Like, are you what 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 type of stocks are you guys throwing around on these on these discussions? Yeah. So uh, maybe that leads to some of our. Uh, um, investment criteria, investment style, and all that. So, you know, generally speaking, um, we both like ownership interest, um, good management, you know, high quality management with skin in the game, good ownership interest. Um, yeah, but uh, even before that, you know, the quality of the business is important. Um, Knowing the uh, type of business is important. Um, not jump into a name based on hearsay or based on some recommendation from somebody else. So um, um, I tend to run, I tend to generate ideas from a variety of different angles, including screens. Um, I think Chris runs less of screens these days, but he's a voracious reader. He's a fantastic writer, as you know. And he has a much wider network than I do. Um, so we bring up ideas and um, um, you know, one that I would uh, confidently say that uh, he also owns as a result of our ongoing conversation is a name out of Sweden called Evolution Gaming. It used to be Evolution Gaming. It's now called Evolution AB. Um, it's a fascinating business. Um, as I said, the company is based out of Sweden. There are only 15 employees in the headquarters in Sweden. Much of the rest of the um, 10,000 some employees are spread across a variety of different uh, uh, studios, what they call the studios. So what the business is, is uh, they essentially provide the live part of um, the live casino to other um gaming operators you know think mm -hmm. of a fan duel or a DraftKings that's offering say a blackjack or a baccarat um but uh you know for a number of different reasons many of the players may actually uh want to have a light dealer um actually managing that game instead of just being able to play it on a mobile phone Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a live dealer, it brings in a level of credibility, um, but it also brings a bunch of other challenges, you know, uh, video resolution, payment technology, 
um, rules and regulations that go along with specific games and all that. So this company essentially is the market leader in that space. Um, they run studios out of uh, Malta, Latvia, Georgia, the country, and they have a few studios here in the US now. Um, US is sort of uh, way behind in terms of uh, gaming uh, uh, regulations. Uh, they have a studio in uh, Canada, in Vancouver, Canada. So, um, you know, uh, the company offers this live uh, option where they have young girls and gals, guys and gals kind of uh, managing as dealers. And uh, uh, the quality of the business is fantastic. Um, it's growing at, you know, double digit uh, rate, growing top line at double digit rate. And uh, even free cash um, is growing at fantastic rate. Return on capital is close to, is a little north of 30% with no debt on the balance sheet. Um, founders are on the board, two of the founders are on the board. Uh, original backers and the founders, they own about 18% of the stock. Um, and uh, the business is poised to continue to grow. So um, uh, continue to grow both in, the, both in the US and in Europe. Europe is, Europe is about 60% of the total business. Um, and so that's a name I would say that uh, came out of these discussions um, sometime last year. Yeah, that's not a bad name to come out of to come out of one of those chats. I know um, another really great investor, Yen Lau from Aravon oh, yes. Capital. Yeah, he's. I think. I think he's. I think he's still long that stock. But this is this is kind of a good opportunity then to transition from these type of investments. So we've got Evolution now, which is this the types of businesses that that you're invested in and the types of businesses you enjoy. What did that criteria, that investment criteria look like when you first started investing? And how has think, that changed over time? I think that's a fascinating question. I think that's a fascinating question. Um, I think uh, as investors, um, as managers, you know, we need to continue to evolve um, over time. Um, I think that is a must because uh, the market is not static. Um, and uh, of course, as constant, you know, uh, learners, readers, um, you know, we managers need to continue to evolve. So uh, it certainly has evolved. Um, just as a background for you, Brent, um, you know, I started, I started um, in the business of pure asset management in 2005. Um, managed uh, you know, uh, different portfolios in three different platforms. And I would credit uh, late Mr. David Heller, who founded uh, a firm called Advisory Research here in Chicago for uh, who I am today as an investor. Um, he taught us the uh, basics of investing, how to think about um, the art of investing. Uh, but one important criteria that this is going back to 2005, six timeframe, right? So one important criteria at that time, which worked wonderfully at that time was focus on valuation first, you know, find me a cheap business. Um, and uh, we will then sit down and discuss everything else. 
So valuation was first and foremost. And of course, this was um, you know, three, three and a half billion uh, in total assets at that time. Mm-hmm. We grew to about seven and a half billion um, by 2010, uh, which is when it was acquired by Piper Jaffray, the investment bank out of Minneapolis. But uh, the one constant all through the time period was um, focus on valuation first, find me a cheap stock, and then we'll discuss. Um, now, as I think about where I am today, you know, I've been uh, running SVN Capital for the last couple of years. One important change that I've made is valuation is still important, but it is not the most important. First and foremost is um, the circle of the proverbial circle of competence. You know, do right. I really understand the business? That's number one. Um, and immediately, Bitcoin, pure energy. Uh, exploration production companies, many mining companies, you know, those businesses sort of fall outside the circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, there is a whole bunch that fall within the circle. And then I go to the quality of the business question. Quality of the business is analyzed from a variety of different angles. And our first, uh, the couple of more important points within that is, does the business generate um, high return on incremental capital? It's not just return on capital, it's incremental capital over a stretch of number of years. Mm-hmm. And then more importantly, does it have a good reinvestment opportunity? Because right. the combination of these two, you know, high return on incremental capital and high reinvestment, that's what leads to increase in intrinsic value. So I spend a lot of time thinking about those two aspects and um, um, and so in that process, I evaluate what the operating leverage of the business is, what mm-hmm. the finance, what the capital structure of the business is. Does it need outside capital or is it all internally generated? What right. sort of capital uh, deployment decisions are being made by the managers? And, um, and so that's number two. Number three is uh, the quality of the management team. And uh, there is, that's where, you know, the original point that you made about Chris Mayer kind of becomes more important because skin in the game is an important um, area, is an important uh, criteria. The decisions made, um, you know, um, what what I found is uh, managers with skin in the game um, and who tend to be generally, who tend to be uh, owner operators, they have this mentality of making good capital allocation decisions. Right. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about the capital uh, management by the management team. Um, you know, how are they getting paid? What are the incentive stru- structures? Um, and uh, everything associated with, uh, um, with incentive and what the motivation for the management team is likely to be. And then the fourth question is where valuation becomes, uh, valuation comes into play. Uh, that's the last of the four pieces that I I now um, I now look, use for any and all investments that I look at. Mm-hmm. And um, when when I'm thinking about valuation, you know, it's like um, you know one of the CEOs he wrote a number of years ago. He wrote about um, valuation in one of his letters, and he said it's like uh, taking a picture of a two-ton elephant from close angle. 
you know, no one angle is actually going to give you a very um, good picture. So you have to look at it from a variety of different angles. Right. So I use a variety of different metrics in thinking about um, evaluation. Um, but essentially, I come back to, you know, what the definition of a business is. What is the value of a business? It's the discounted value of future cash flows at a reasonable discount rate, right? And so free cash flow is one of the more important pieces of how I think about evaluation. So those are the four, four criteria. And that is today, as opposed to in the past, where valuation was number one and you know everything followed after that. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's interesting how that seems to be kind of the general theme is investors that start out, they start out and valuations up at the front. And then over time, as they evolve, valuation goes from the front to the last thing to consider. And <laughs> how, how, how often when you're researching companies that you find by putting valuation last, that you spend most of your time looking at businesses you can't buy today, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that's part of me developing a bullpen list. Um, and uh, my bullpen list is sort of split into two. The more, um, um, the more active one is a much smaller list of just about 10 to 12 businesses at this point. The other list is more, um, is much longer um, businesses that I've known in the past that I've continued to monitor for a variety of different reasons. That has close to 70, 80 names. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, um, new businesses that come up through these SOTU discussions are more likely to go into this shorter list um, where should we see another February, March, 2020 kind of a pullback, some of these businesses can become more um, a lot more attractive, a lot more actionable. In your letter that I read, there's the um, founder's letter you wrote to, to, to investors. You described your background again before starting the fund and how you specialized in, in M&A. So what part of that M&A experience do you think translates or do you think uh, has equipped you the most to take on being your own you know, one-man investment shop? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. You know, my background, I'm originally from India, I came here to the US as a graduate student in accounting and decided to stay back. Um, worked for an insurance company before going to University of Chicago for my MBA. I went to Chicago with the sole intent of being a banker, investment banker, and um, which uh, I did. Uh, I did join uh, Alex Brown in Baltimore and then moved to Thomas Wiseau. Um, that was uh, a fascinating experience. I was there in total only for a few years, but um, you know, for um, somebody from India who never, who didn't know what investment was, what banking was, to be going into something called investment banking, it was definitely like uh, uh, drinking from a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of exposed me to a number of different areas. Um, obviously, first and foremost is all the analytical aspect of finance that came along with the uh, uh, primary responsibility. But uh, it also 
gave me the opportunity to be in some of these boardroom discussions, which I absolutely wouldn't have had. Yeah. Discussions where, um, you know, board would talk about possible, possibly taking a company public, possibly uh, considering um, an M&A transaction, either acquiring or selling themselves, uh, possibly raising capital. So, you know, it gave me a very different context to decision-making, to um, power brokering, to, you know, human interactions, um, all on top of all the financial analysis that went along with the job. So what uh, I use today is mostly the financial aspects of it, and more importantly, the qualitative aspects of human interaction, not necessarily um, the M&A part of it, but the human interaction part of it. Hmm. Um, you know, the kind of quality businesses that I invest today, I would rather have them continue to execute on that plan as opposed to selling themselves. Yeah, if they're making acquisitions, that would absolutely be of some interest to me, but I generally like growth that is just organic as opposed to um, growth through acquisitions. Uh, yeah, some of these companies, you know, I used Evolution. Evolution has made two big acquisitions. They acquired uh, the third biggest player in the space, another Swedish company called NetEnt. In fact, that's how I stumbled onto the name in the first place. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've also acquired another company in Australia, which provides them, um, a, you know, a big edge to a big edge in online slots. So uh, yeah, they have grown through acquisitions, and a few of my other businesses have also made some acquisitions. But uh, I generally like organic growth as opposed to acquisitive growth, uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, um, uh, in fact, when I look back at my own. Uh, um, at my own career, since my um, days at University of Chicago, every single firm that I worked for was acquired either while I was there or soon after I left. Hmm. And none of those acquisitions have really played out um, as originally expected. Um, that certainly has had an impact on my psyche. And um, going back to Chris Mayer, you know, um, that's a point that comes up on our, in our SOTUs all the time. He is always egging me to consider um, acquisitions, not necessarily big acquisitions, but you know, small, smaller acquisitions that uh, well-trained, you know, well-oiled machines like a Constellation software mm -hmm. or some of these businesses. Um, um, you know, they're extremely good at it. And, uh, and so, um, you know, it's, a, it's, an area of, uh, it's an area of interest to me, but I think I'm perennially damaged by what I've gone through. Right. When you were with your two mentors, you mentioned David Heller and then, and then you know, Brian O'Brien um, over, over at Advisory Research, you said that during those years, which were the next, you know, kind of 13 years of your life, you grew, you know, you guys grew assets under management from, you say, 500 million to 7 billion, which is incredible. What were some of the key investments that you guys made during that time, if you remember maybe the one or two big ideas that either you brought to the table or one of your mentors brought, and then you made a big bet and it worked? 
Yeah, um, you know, uh, this was a this was a very different type of uh, firm relative to at least SDN Capital Advisory Research. By the time it was acquired, you know, had a few different platforms, um, portfolios that were exclusively focused on U.S. small cap, U.S. mid, U.S. large cap and a few uh, non-US strategies as well. So it was a very different firm. The idea was to um, uh, put a portfolio together with at least 50, 55 names and above, um, managed by two, three portfolio managers and a number of different analysts. Um, however, you know, I, what I distinctly remember is soon after I joined advisory research, um, Sotheby's was, uh, uh, was a name that was brought up. Unfortunately, I wasn't the analyst on it, mm-hmm. um, but um, it was brought up. It was uh, David Heller's uh, final decision to actually pull the trigger on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sotheby's, as you know, was, uh, it still is one of uh, uh, two major players um, in, um, uh, you know, in that area. And uh, Christie's continues to be private. Sotheby's was public and then was private and then became public and then private. It's gone through various different iterations. But at that time, it was a public company. Um, you know, a financial crisis hit. And uh, obviously, that was one of the um, areas that was, uh, uh, that was badly damaged. The stock price went down to, I remember, this went down to single digits, eight or seven dollars. And um, uh part of the analysis was um yeah over time the business is going to improve but it also has um it also has this uh, massive piece of property on bond street in london and uh, it turned out that the actual investment the actual property in uh on bond street was actually worth more than what the market cap of the company was at that time Right, and it turned out to be a phenomenal success. Um, and I know for a number of years, even after I left advisory, um, they owned uh, Sotheby's. Um, and so uh, again, the analysis going back to my discussion about how uh, my investment style has evolved. You know, this was an analysis based on uh, pure valuation at that time. Yes, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, eventually, we did discuss the uh, uh, duopoly between Christie's and Sotheby's, and you know, but uh, the driver was essentially valuation. Um, another investment I would uh, bring up in that same vein. Again, um, I was not the analyst at that time on this one. It was a company called Long's Drugs. Um, this was a, a you know um, the. Walgreens on the West, I would say. Um, you know, they had a big presence in California. That's where they were, they were originally founded. They had a number of different stores in Hawaii. You know, they were a big name on the West. And um, CVS had made a, a bid to acquire, this was before the financial crisis, and made a bid to acquire um, uh, Long's Drugs. Um, and uh, at that time, advisory was one of the largest uh, uh, institutional holders of lungs. Um, soon after, within a matter of a few days, it was actually Bill Ackman who called 
hmm. uh, um, to engage with David Heller to actually figure out um, if we knew what the value of the real estate was. Longstruts was very cagey about disclosing the different locations. And so we really couldn't come up with a, a true value of each one of these properties. Right. And, uh, and I think of a Walgreens, uh, it's exactly that. It's that uh, the name was different and they had a very different uh, um, inventory system and product sourcing system. Um, so it was CVS, which had made a bid to acquire and uh, Bill Ackman came in and uh, engaged with us. He became a really large shareholder soon after. He actually invited Walgreens to make a bid. Um, and then, you know, financial crisis hit and Walgreens actually pulled out eventually became part of CVS. There's another six, seven bagger at that time within a matter of a number of years, you know, less than five years, I think. So, um, so yeah, I mean, um, the, uh, the period, particularly the period before financial crisis, the focus on valuation is the topmost focus actually worked uh, right. for a number of different reasons, you know, interest rate, the actual um, uh, opportunity set evolving, the uh, uh, power of technology businesses dominating the larger market. Um, I think all those factors put together, um, I think uh, you know, having that sort of evaluation as the topmost fo focus hasn't necessarily worked quite as well. So do you think maybe the shift, as we discussed earlier, the shift from valuation being in the front to valuation being in the back, do you think that that is a bit of a byproduct of the current market environment we're in. And it's not to say that investors can get away with, you know, in air quotes, get away with putting valuation at the end. But it seems whether from all that I've read on Twitter that there's this lack of apathy towards valuation where if it's a great enough business, it doesn't matter what you pay, which is, which is true, right? But what I question is how many truly great businesses are actually out there and then how many of those businesses that people think are great or are going to survive for the next five to 10 years? Another fantastic question. And it's a conundrum. Um, but I do think, I do think it is, um, it's got something to do with how this, uh, how the current market environment is, uh, is, is dominated by um, youngish investors. Now there's actually a gentleman by the name of uh, William Tai. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. He's also active on Twitter. Um, he wrote a fascinating paper a number of years ago about how um, the uh, investor base at any one point in time in the market has a duration of approximately eight years or so. And, and so um, particularly during these um, uh, you know, rough periods like uh, 2007, eight, or even, uh, you know, or even 2020, 2020, uh, February, March, um, less so only because the market has bounced so viciously since then. Yep. But uh, um, a long duration pullback, 54 some percent pullback in uh, uh, 2007, eight, nine, that sort of has an impact on uh, the type of investors. Mm -hmm. um, when you combine that with the stat that um, uh, almost um, uh, you know almost fifty percent of the uh, 
current investor base is born after 1983. I may be messing up the stats. I may be messing up the numbers uh, a little bit, but it's approximately correct according to William Todd. So when you see, when you have that, um, you know you've had a market. You had a market pullback of 50 some percent, and then um, many of these investors that have come into um, come into you know uh, real big um, assets, most of whom have been post the financial crisis. They haven't necessarily seen the number of cycles that many other managers have seen. You know, Adam Smith, not the original Adam Smith, but the guy who wrote um, Money Train and things like that. Um, in uh, in one of his books, he wrote about how these types of cycles have a have a you know, material impact on how uh, managers uh, think about investing. So when you have a whole bunch of investors who have come into the market post-financial crisis, haven't necessarily been tested, and you have a market where you know, um, interest rates are really low, whether it's artificially low or naturally low, right. you know, people can have a debate about that. Um, and you also have this, uh, have this uh, um, evolution of technology um, you know, pervading every other sector. Um, you know, you're bound to see what, uh, what you're seeing. Uh, mathematically speaking, you know, if uh, the value of a business is the present value of future cash flows at a, at a reasonable discount rate, and if that discount rate is dependent upon some interest rate, and that some interest rate is at a, an all-time low, obviously the resulting number is going to be high. I'm not saying that's the only factor, but if you put all these things together, I'm not surprised what we are going through uh, right now. Right. And when did you decide to go out on your own and start SVN Capital? And how how was that process? Were you, you know, were you thinking about it for quite a few years and maybe towards the end of that 13 year tenure with your mentors, you're sitting there thinking, you know what, Hey, I can, I can probably do this on my own. And then how were those first few months after launching? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, as I said, I'm originally from, from India, my maternal grandfather, he was a, he was an entrepreneur, um, you know, didn't have, didn't go to college, but uh, turned out to be a fantastic businessman. I think it's partly that gene pool that, um, sort of drove me. Um, as I said, I, you know, I was an investment banker for a few years and then um, joined this uh, outfit called Discovery Financial Partners in 2005. And um, around 2010, when uh, uh, Piper Jaffrey acquired advisory research um, is when I decided that this is what I wanted to do for my life. I'm generally a very um, curious person, want to continue to read a lot, learn a lot. And this is, uh, you know, investing in the market is extremely challenging. Um, and uh, that's something that I always cherished and I continue to cherish. So around 2010 is when I decided that this is what I wanted to do, but I wasn't um, financially ready. I wasn't uh, mentally ready. And so I continued on for a few more years. And um, as I said, every single firm uh, that I work for has been acquired. And in 2018, Keeley Asset Management, which I joined right after advisory, was acquired by Mario Gabelli. 
Huh. Okay. And uh, at that time, uh, I continued to work for uh, Mario for a few months after that, and then I decided that this was the time. And um, this was the first. Obviously, this was the first, uh, um, you know, entrepreneurial uh, venture for me. And so the first few months were really gut wrenching. Um, it was uh, I was not um, I was not sure exactly which direction uh, life was going. I knew that eventually I wanted to launch a fund and um, manage uh, manage a portfolio. Um, but the initial few weeks, months was uh, was quite challenging, not just from a portfolio standpoint, but more the operational, the logistics, um, the uh, the art of raising assets, which yeah. still continues. Um, and so, um, uh, oh, you know, it takes a, it takes a, at least it took me a few quarters, a couple of years, to actually get comfortable with this concept of being on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Felix Dennis, a Brit who actually was an entrepreneur, who was a writer, who launched many things. He wrote a, an autobiography um, uh, how to get rich or how to become rich or something like that. In it, he actually asks a question, you know, what's the most addictive thing in life? Um, many people think about a variety of different, you know, intoxicating stuff. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in a few pages, he actually gives the answer. It's actually monthly paycheck. Um, and that is absolutely true. And so um, I remember reading this back in the uh, mid 2000s and sort of, you know, jotted it in the back of my mind. And I definitely wanted to get away from that intoxicating thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the initial few um, quarters were tough, but then, you know, over time, things have stabilized a bit. What was the hardest part about fundraising that you didn't expect when you started? It's still ongoing, right? Um, you know, uh, I remember um, I remember uh, one of the greatest sages of, I won't use his name, one of the greatest sages of investing, I would say, um, when I discussed this with him, he's like, um, Sri, I know you're, a, you're, a, you're an intelligent guy. It's um, uh, don't focus just on the art of making the cheese. Continue to focus on the art of selling the cheese too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, when, you, when you step into an entrepreneurial um, path like this, um, you're responsible for all aspects, not just managing the portfolio. And uh, you need to really figure out who you are as an individual. By nature, I'm not necessarily a, you know, an extrovert in that regard, um, pounding the table hard in yep. terms of being able to go sell. But that's an art that I have continued to focus on, continue to develop. I am, I am still working on it. I wouldn't say I'm anywhere close. Um, but, uh, one thing I did realize, and I didn't want to approach my institutional contacts. I still don't have any institutional investors in the fund. Um, one thing I would, uh, uh, I did realize was, um, people, um, for a variety of, variety of different reasons, um, may actually be, uh, 
willing to invest, but for a number of reasons, will defer it. Will defer it for a um, for a period of time. And um, you know, it, uh, I'm going through questions. You know, what is it that I have said or I am doing that is uh, uh, that is making people defer? Um, so it's the art of actually developing a thick skin. Um, in, yep. this, in this business of selling, um, you have to realize that uh, you have to develop a thick skin and uh, there's absolutely nothing personal uh, for a variety of different reasons. They're not able to make that commitment. And um, so be it, you know, I've been very fortunate with my investors. They're fairly long-term thinkers, long-term uh, investors themselves. And um, those are the types of individuals that I am anyway looking for over, over, you know, over the next uh, over the next few years. Yeah, and we can dive right into the topic of idea generation and 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 two unique ideas. But before we do that, it is it is fascinating to think that it's not just your returns that matter when I know a lot of people, myself included, that was my initial hypothesis is if you build it, they will come, right? If you if you generate market beating returns, eventually the money's gonna come to you, but it's not as easy as that. And everyone I've talked to that has started a fund has, has told me the exact same thing. That is absolutely true. And, uh, uh, you know, many things in life like that um, are in exact, uh, contradiction to what you would expect, right? Um, you, yeah, there are some investors, some individuals who still want to know um, what the quarterly quarterly numbers were, what the last year numbers were. Um, but to a large extent, I think, uh, um, you know, if you keep at it, um, yeah. you will have the type of, individuals that you deserve and um, it is a, it is a quirk of life like many other things uh, but that is something that I definitely realized as time progressed like you I also had the same mindset early on but I have realized that over a period of time you know it is um, um, it is not just the numbers um, they need to have the, they need to necessarily, they, they absolutely need to uh, like you as an individual. They need to be able to trust you. Obviously they're parting away with uh, hard earned cash. And so they need to have the trust. And then um, they need to realize that they need to get confidence that you are competent enough. But the fact that they are talking to you, it means that they do have an answer to that third question, which is, is this person competent enough? Yeah. But what happens is, at least in my, in, my, in my way of early thinking, I had the order reversed. I was trying to pound the table hard, trying to impress upon the individual that I am competent. I didn't realize that they already have the answer. What they want to know is whether they like me, whether they trust me and so again my uh, in my evolution i've sort of reversed the order well it's kind of funny too because if you don't accept that third premise that if that person reaches out to you they automatically assume you're competent 
if you start with that and trying to justify your competence and trying to say like, Hey, I'm competent, you know, for X, Y, Z, it could have a reverse effect where that investor or that institution or that wealthy family member reaches out to you. And the first thing you say is, well, you know, Hey, just to let you know, here's why I'm confident or here's why I'm competent, ABC, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, and on the receiving end, they're probably like, well, hold on. If he's competent, why is he being so forthcoming with all this stuff? Like, what is he hiding? Maybe he's overcompensating for something. Absolutely. I agree. That's likely to actually backfire. Um, yeah. You know, it's again, uh, I think uh, many uh, talented salespeople, they actually know this already. And um, Obviously, I'm not trained as a salesperson, uh, but something that I have learned from friends and through my own experience. Let's shift gears and talk about ideas and XUS ideas. The first one is at the top of my mind because I've had multiple people pitch me this stock. Uh, most recently, oh. Omri Velvart from um, Legacy Value partners. I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. The company is Israel-based Automatic Bank Services Limited, ticker symbol yep. SHVA, trades in, yep. I think it trades only in Tel Aviv. I don't I don't think it's anywhere else. Um, let me check. Yep. Yeah. So it's only on the right. Israeli market. So walk us through, Shri, uh, you know, how you found this idea and then why it fits into this framework that you now have for finding great quality companies. Yeah. Um, that's great. So yeah, I have seen some traction on Twitter about this. Um, but um, how did I come across this name? And you know, I generally look for ideas through screens, discussions with other managers, uh, with friends, you know, reading other managers' letters and stuff like that. So this was actually one of my friends from um, University of Chicago. Um, he's based in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, he and I, we have a sort of an ongoing chat, not on a weekly basis, but on a, on a monthly, uh, once every couple of months kind of a basis. He brought up this name and um, uh, he actually owned it in his personal portfolio, not in his professional, just because of liquidity in the site. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Automatic Bank Services, it's a, an Israeli company. Um, in dollar terms at this point, it's just a couple of hundred million uh, market cap, um, highly illiquid, and I'll get to that in a second. So what the company does is essentially provide the uh, software, the uh, actual infrastructure behind credit and debit transactions all within the country of Israel. It's about 9 million people. It's a very advanced country, but it behaves more like uh, an emerging market when it comes to um, transacting on a daily basis. What do I mean by that? Well, in the US, almost 70 plus percent of the transactions are uh, credit and debit based. You know, less than, well, way less than 30% is actually cash. Mm -hmm. In Israel, it's actually flip of that. You know, they like to really handle shekels and um, almost 70 some percent is, in, uh, is, is still in cash. And, um, and, and so what the company does is provide that infrastructure for which it collects a couple of different revenue streams, right? The actual um, application that goes into the point of sale terminal for which they collect a monthly fee. 
And then for every transaction that's swiped through these terminals, they collect this equivalent of two cents. It's called Agora. Agora is the equivalent of a cent in, um, in Israel. So um, two different types of revenue streams. And so the company was actually part of the local banking system through a few different regulatory changes. Mm -hmm. um, it was forced upon these banks to divest what is now automatic bank services. Um, this happened in 2019. Um, four of the original banks continue to own 10% each, 10% of the outstanding shares. Both Visa and MasterCard stepped up after that to take 10% each. Uh, 10 is the maximum allowed in Israel for this company at this point. So 60% um, is in the hands of these guys. And then uh, a couple of other local banks continue to own um, um, a good chunk, which is actually included, which is actually reflected in the float, but they're not necessarily trading. So it's a highly illiquid stock in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, what I find what I find interesting, uh, this goes back to one of your earlier questions about my own investment criteria as well. Uh, what I find interesting is this is the only company that can do what it is doing within the borders of Israel. Um, so monopoly, duopoly sort of situations is something that sort of um, is quite appealing for obvious reasons. In fact, I would say, um, you know, if you get a chance, uh, listen to this, listen to this uh, YouTube interview um, by Peter Thiel, not, in, not an interview. He's, he, he actually talked to the business school students of Stanford, I think it was 2017. And uh, he titled it, uh, Competition is for Losers. Um, it's the same it's concept a, that's in his book. It's, it's such that's, a fantastic video. Okay, you've already seen it, yeah. It's so, it's so good, but no, but no, definitely, definitely describe it for those that haven't seen it. Yeah, so I would highly recommend it. It's actually a concept from his book, um, you know, Zero to One. Um, but the idea here is um, he's talking about how, um, you know, uh, monopolists always claim that they are not, and non-monopolists always claim that they are. And so he's saying all companies essentially lie in how they describe themselves. And uh, he says, um, and I agree, these you know, monopolists end up capturing a uh, majority of uh, the excess return, while um, you know, uh, the non-monopolists, he, in his mind, in his description, there are only two types of businesses. One may quibble with that description, but uh, the concept that he's trying to highlight there is what I'm more interested in. And the concept is, these monopolists essentially capture the majority of the excess returns. And, and so, you know, here's a company in Israel that does, that is the only company that is allowed to do what it's doing, for which it's capturing um, a reasonable uh, amount, of, uh, amount of revenue. There is no debt on the balance sheet of automatic bank services. Uh, in fact, at the time when they actually spun this off, they wanted to um, have, they wanted to have, make a special dividend at some point, but then soon after COVID hit, and, uh, and so that excess cash continues to remain on the balance sheet. Um, and in the meantime, uh, because of COVID, 
the uh, behavioral changes have been have become more institutionalized. So you know less cash usage. For example, you know the local bus system, which is the primary artery connecting the country. A lot of people have their cars, but public transportation is essentially through bus system. They have something more like your metro car, which uh, which can which can get uh, um, refilled uh, every time you use up. And people used to use shekels uh, to refill that, and that's now all um, you know credit or debit based. Um, Apple Pay, for example, just uh, Apple Pay uh, became operational just a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And as a result, um, the volume of transactions, um, you know, through these systems has, has gone up quite meaningfully. There was a report um, that said the volume of transactions have gone up because of Apple Pay by 13 and a half times relative to what it was last year. Right. Um, so it's a meaningful jump. Um, so more and more as time progresses, uh, either it's because of COVID or, you know, the after effects of COVID, the behavioral changes are being institutionalized, and um, uh, the number of transactions is only is only increasing and improving. Um, and uh, there are certain um, so one may turn around and ask as to why is the stock uh, where is the stock trading? Why is the stock trading where it is? Well, uh, relative to say Mastercard or Visa here in the U.S., when from all different angles from any multiple that you want to look at. This is trading at less than half where, um, you know, Visa and MasterCard are trading. Obviously they are behemoths. They have, uh, Visa particularly has a number of other, um, number of other businesses associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can, you can uh, allocate a number of different uh, types of valuation metrics to that. But uh, in general, I would say this is still trading at less than half where a typical business like this would uh, would trade at, and that's partly because the filings are all in Hebrew. The first filings are all in Hebrew. Yep. Um, they do have English translations, but they come out fairly late. In fact, uh, the Q1 and Q2 translations of 2021 haven't come out yet. Until recently, um, you know, the, there was question about a CEO slot. The original individual, uh, Mr. Wolf, who had taken the company uh, public, he had announced his retirement. And so there was a gap in, um, there was a little bit of a question as to who was going to take over. Mm -hmm. They have identified and there is a new CEO in place. Um, I have a few different contacts in Tel Aviv and one of them is actually on a regular basis, for, um, you know, engaging with the management team. The other one is trying to set up a call um, with the management team. I try to spend some time with management teams of all my companies. This one, I have not, partly because of all these changes. So, you know, the CEO slot, which has been addressed, and that's number two. And number three, it's still a micro cap company for all practical purposes. Uh, there is no uh, Israeli or non-Israeli sell side firm that covers uh, the stock. And as I said up front, um, the liquidity is pretty light because 60 plus percent is controlled by these institutions. So uh, uh, my, my view is a monopoly within a very small country, 9 million people, um, generating fantastic returns with no debt on the balance sheet, 
some of these peripheral logistical issues are being addressed as we speak. And, uh, um, and I find the, I find the uh, business pretty interesting from that standpoint. What is one reason, or maybe a couple of reasons, why competitors won't be allowed to enter the space or why it's competitively disadvantaged for the Israeli consumer, maybe even like the Israeli economy to have multiple competitors in the space? Yeah, so this is a regulated business. As I said upfront, you know, it used to be part of the local banking system. Um, it has been spun off as a private as a private company, but still, um, you know, highly regulated by the um, competition authorities. Um, this is the only company that has been blessed to be operational in that space. Can that change? Yeah, anything can happen. At this point, um, this is the only company. Um, while I listed a number of different items as to why I think the valuation is where it is. I did leave out very specifically one other point because I was waiting for you to ask this question. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, there is another entity, you know, think of the SWIFT in the West, SWIFT organization in the West where um, cash gets transacted between banks. There is a similar entity in this infrastructure, in this environment in Israel. Um, it's called Masab, Masab. Um, and they are all, both of them, both, Automatic bank services and Masal were used to be part of the banking system. And in the process of separating, Masal has also become a separate entity, although that is private. Now, both Schwa, automatic bank services, and Masal, they do share some expenses. And uh, there has been um, questions about um, who is responsible for what cost and how is this sharing going to be eventually addressed. Um, and that ambiguity has also held the stock down a little bit. However, um, over time there has become, you know, the regulators have provided more color. There ha it hasn't been completely settled yet, but there has been more uh, discernment between the two entities. Um, uh, in fact, there was, at one time, there was a rumor that Schwa can actually acquire Masal. Um, you know, they've got the capital, they've got the cash on the balance sheet. They may have to take on some more debt to actually pay for the whole thing. But then this is a high cash flow generating business and they'll be able to pay down their debt fairly quickly. While that may still happen in the future, I'm not sure. But uh, in the meantime, the regulators are providing as days go by, they're providing more and more color to the separation of responsibility and expenses between the two entities. And so, um, um, you know, if there is, if there is um, a need for another player to come into the space, you know, without necessarily knowing the regulatory environment, the nuances of the Israeli regulatory environment, I would say we already have a potential player in Masal. Um, but uh, uh, from what I understand, there is not likely to be another player put into place, not yet at least. Mm -hmm. Got it. No, it's a fascinating business. And anybody that has, I guess, a small enough amount of, of, of capital to put to work, because like you said, it is very illiquid. So if you're, you know, if you're a big player, it's going to be hard for you to accumulate a position that'll move the needle. Do you think that 
that's going to get resolved as let's say they transition from Hebrew only filings to like a US based filing. And then maybe they sling out a pitch deck or an investor, you know, presentation or something for, for US shareholders. I don't know if it's going to be US style, but um, uh, at least with this change in the CEO slot, um, I hear that there is more receptivity in terms of providing more timely English translations, English filings. Um, but uh, perhaps leaving it like this allows, you know, investors like me to continue to uh, develop a position and wait. Um, you know, um, I remember a couple of years ago when Warren Buffett was asked, um, you know, Warren, there's, there are so many changes happening at Apple. Um, there are these new iPhones being developed or new whatever is being developed, how are you able to um, keep track of all these developments at Apple? And uh, Warren, in his very inimitable style, he said, um, if one has to keep track of all those detailed nuances, one ought not to be invested in Apple. So yeah. when I think about Schwa, yeah, the filings are still in Hebrew. I do get English translations, um, but I'm able to engage with my friends in Israel who are able to translate Hebrew into English for me and uh, at least provide color. But uh, yeah, from an institutional investor standpoint, that could be a big hangup. I tweeted about this a few days ago. Maybe it was just over the weekend. Okay. Regarding... Um, the idea of just too much information and how there's an emphasis put on knowing every single thing about a business. And I was left, I, I, I forget who it was that responded. It might've been uh, Amarillo Capital. I can, I can look it up, but the argument against my stance, which was basically trying to be in the top 1% of all knowledge about a business is a little bit overdone and a little bit overrated. And what matters more than that is knowing the one to two key drivers of a business Absolutely. and kind of knowing when to parse that out. But the feedback that I got was you can't know the one to two drivers about a business if you don't know or if you aren't in the top 1% of knowledge base. And I go back and forth between that and then kind of Buffett's, Buffett's comments on Apple where I, I don't know if Buffett is in the top 1% of all knowledge on Apple. I, I, I mean, if he is, then I'd be pleasantly surprised, but it just, I don't think he is. And that's why I go back to this idea where you don't have to know every single thing about a business. You don't have to know every single question. You have to know enough to know the one to two drivers. But I think that it, that this idea of knowing only, like you have to be in the top 1% to buy a business. I think that stipends a lot of investors from buying shares of companies. I agree. I absolutely agree. In fact, I've written about this to my investors uh, somewhat um, on a tangential point. Um, and that is with respect to, um, with respect to the um, trading level, you know, an average S&P 500 stock uh, was held for approximately four, little more than four years in the 1940s. It's now come down to just about five months. And uh, thanks to high frequency trading and a lot of other investors who are looking for 
information, who find information and trade on it. Uh, a number of other factors kind of play, but I think um, uh, um, you know people are generally motivated to trade a lot as they get information, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, but uh, you know, for me in this in this particular uh, investment, yeah, I don't have everything available in English in a very timely fashion. But uh, you know, this is not a core position because of liquidity and because of that lack of information for me. But it's still in a ten stock portfolio. You know, it's still five plus percent at this point. So uh, I'm willing to be patient. Um, be in the dark a little bit about the more nuanced day-to-day -day happenings. Um, but uh, we'll see how this plays out with this new CEO who is more receptive to filings in English on a timely fashion. We may start seeing um, more, more uh, engagement with the Western world. One more idea I want to run by you before we wrap up. I know I've taken up an hour of your time. Uh, this is another idea that I've that I found from Tom. Um, shoot, I'm totally blanking on his name. He runs PFH Capital. Uh, Thomas Backrack, yeah, or Backrack. He runs PFH Capital, okay. and he, he got me this idea. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll I'll send you his his stuff. He's he's great. He hunts in the small and micro cap esoteric land. This company is Live Chat. LW. Ah. Yeah. So. Trades on the Polish stock exchange, and it's a terrific business. I wish I would have bought when Thomas told me to, way back, way back when it was cheap, um, and it still is pretty cheap. But way back when it was cheaper. So walk us through what Live Chat does, and again, how you found it, and and what made you want to put a position on in this company. Yeah, as I said, uh, you know, I generate ideas from screens, discussions, readings, and all that. This one came out of my screen, um, and uh, it was uh, late late twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty. Um, I remember uh, coming across this name and sort of uh, pondering. Um, you know, in fact, this was one of the discussions with Chris on uh, in our SOTUs. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a name based in, uh, this is a company based in um, uh, what's called as Rotsa. Uh, and uh, uh, it's spelled as W-R-O-C-L-A-W, uh, Southwest Poland. The company trades in um, Warsaw Stock Exchange. Um, you know, Poland is a fascinating market. It's a, it's a fascinating country, you know, as a uh, Western investor, you know, it's not the first name that sort of jumps off your tongue in terms of, uh, in terms of investment opportunity. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating country. Um, country has been independent for only about 50 of its last 250 years. You know, um, it's grown approximately a little north of four plus percent since 1990, nonstop. And so it's the fastest, second fastest growing country, second only to South Korea, in terms of its evolution from being a, a developing country, developing market into a developed market. Um, and uh, 
you know, it's uh, it's part of the uh, um, European Union, 27 countries, uh, but it has its destiny under its own control by not being part of the Eurozone. And so it has control over its own slotty, the currency, which is about 3.8 to a dollar. That has stayed flat. And so what the company does is, well, the company was originally founded in the early 2000s. The um, original founders are still running it. You know, Marius, who actually moved to Florida recently uh, to be closer to the Western, to the US market. Um, uh, he, he was one of the original founders in uh, the mid to 2007, eight timeframe, they'd actually sold it to a private equity firm. They bought it back, bought it back and then um, uh, eventually took it public. So what the company does is they provide um, these, uh, you know, customer service kind of uh, solution uh, um, uh, products. When you go to certain websites, you know, you may see a sort of a face pop up on the right bottom and ask you, hey, may I help you? Or how may I direct your query or something like that? Um, you know, live chat is uh, one of the uh, one of the companies that actually provides that service. They've got four different products, but the primary product is this live chat. The other one, which is fast growing within their own um, slew of products is called Chatbot. Um, again, another um, customer service, customer uh, friendly and customer service oriented product. Um, now there are approximately 200 plus operators in the space, in the space of live chat. I'm sure you've heard of companies like HubSpot, um, Zendesk, um, another, you know, another big public company called LivePerson. These are all companies that sort of uh, provide um, along with whatever they provide, either a CRM, customer relationship management software, or um, you know, certain other products in that spectrum, they also provide this live chat as an option. Uh, and there are a slew of other, pro other providers who actually offer the same thing free of cost. They're called freemium models, free of cost. Mm -hmm. But essentially what live chat can, um, uh, considers as competition is just a couple of different companies, um, which also charge for this um, for this product. There's something called Talk2 out of uh, Canada and um, Intercom and um, there are a few other players in that space. So um, the company is now public, um, you know, more than 40 plus percent, just about 40. The, the original founders, they sold down a little bit um, of their shares earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's controlled by those, by, by the insiders. Um, it's about 800 some million uh, dollars in market cap, uh, three some billion in uh, Polish Zloty, no debt on the balance sheet. The company is absolutely um, focused on keeping its balance sheet pristine uh, without any debt. Um, the other interesting aspect about this company is its marketing strategy. Uh, when you think about, when you look at HubSpot or Zendesk, or live person for that matter. These are all, you know, Zendesk is a company that moved from Netherlands to the West, to the US. Um, HubSpot and live person and all these guys, you know, they have a fairly robust sales and marketing um, operation. Mm -hmm. They conduct a number of conferences, you know, they have their own slew of sales guys go out and get business. 
and that's part of their um, growth strategy. So in marketing, there is something called a push-pull marketing style. And so these guys have this strategy of going up um, to, uh, you know, using a fairly hefty, large uh, sales and marketing team to go get business. And as a result, uh, the SGNA margin um, in many of these companies is well north of 40, 45%. In a couple of them, it's actually north of 50%. So more than 50% of revenue actually goes towards just SGNA. Well, when you compare that to live chat, you know, only recently they have hired a couple of sales guys in the US. US is still their largest market. About two, only 2% of their revenue comes from Poland. It's a highly geographically diversified business. Um, but the way they have grown is more like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this company called Atlassian in Australia. Atlassian? You know, yeah. Yeah. Team. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they actually have written the book on how to grow business without necessarily uh, developing uh, a large sales and marketing team. Right. And so uh, that's the model that live chat, um, you know, uh, embraces. And so their SGNA margin is in the low 20%. It used to be just in the teens, only recently after they hired these uh, sales guys in the US, um, that margin has crossed 20%. So it's a highly profitable business. Um, even though I told you I like monopolies and duopolies and oligopolies, this is not that type of a business. Mm -hmm. If you look at the 200 some players, it's not that, but it does satisfy um, the condition of being a unique player where um, they have a strategy of growing the business with this you know, push-pull uh, in the pull strategy of marketing where they have control over the cost and as a result, generate hefty returns. And um, you know, one thing about Poland um, is uh, as the company evolved, from a communist country into what it is today, mm -hmm. they spent a lot of time and effort and resources in developing their educational system. And today we have a very robust tech talent in Poland, particularly with respect to gaming companies. Um, you know, um, CD Project is a company that you may have heard of. Oh, I know. Uh, I'm studying. I'm 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 trying to study it a little bit more because it's. Uh... It's it it's such a good business. It makes terrific games, and it's gotten crushed over the last year for some because of that one game. Issues. Yeah, the cyberpunk yeah. issues. Yeah. So, but uh, it sort of highlights how uh, the country has kind of uh, developed its tech talent, and uh, Wroclaw uh, or Wrocław, which is where this con this company is based, actually has a fantastic university, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, and as a result, you know, they've been able to uh, uh, hire this tech talent in Poland, even though Poland has, you know, grown um, uh, rapidly. It's actually GDP, its GDP is bigger than Sweden's. The um, uh, wage uh, comparison relative to, say, Ireland, it's actually four times cheaper than Ireland's. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, 100% of their developer uh, base, employee base is actually based in Poland. 
And uh, that's another factor that helps them keep that SGNA margin low. Um, but when you put all that together, it's a very high uh, return generating business in a competitive space, um, but has found a very unique niche in terms of uh, going after uh, large financial institutions, medium to large financial institutions. You know, these financial institutions cannot go after these uh, freemium providers. I mean, they want their data to be, uh, you know, to be protected. Data integrity becomes very important. And you know, that's something that somebody like a live chat provides um, you know, extensively to all its uh, customer base. And so they've been growing their customer base. They have 33,000 plus uh, paying customers. Um, average revenue per user ARPU has been constantly going up. Um, and in the meantime, they have been growing their um, other three products, Chatbot being the biggest of the other three, and that's growing at a much rapid clip. The larger market size of this live chat is sort of constrained. And that goes back to Peter Thiel's point. You know, you want to be in businesses where the market is um, constrained and you become a big player in, a, in that constrained market. Right. And then over time, it gives you the opportunity to grow into other verticals or other areas. That's exactly what live chat is doing. Chatbot is a much bigger market size. And yeah, there are other competitors coming in. Uh, Drift.com is a player that has come into that space. A few others are... Um, uh, coming in as we speak, but um, you know, uh, live chat is growing rapidly within that chatbot space, and they've got two other products: knowledge base and help desk. Um, so it's a business where management team has big skin in the game, 40, 40 some percent, no debt on the balance sheet, high return generating. What I don't like um, is uh, the company's, the management team's commitment to return capital via dividend. For this sort of a high return generating business, I would rather have them uh, reinvest, but then this is a business where reinvestment is essentially in a form of hiring um, tech talent and nothing else. Yep. Um, so as a result, they are um, returning back some of that free cash flow in terms of dividend. It's a healthy dividend yield at this point of about three and a half percent. And so, yeah, over time, um, one of two things are likely to happen. They continue to grow or some of these larger players may find something like a live chat to be an attractive target. Um, they, two years ago, going back about two plus years ago, they opened up uh, what they call a strategic review. And that strategic review's primary focus was to see if they can actually relist in the US. Hmm. Um, as a Polish, as a Warsaw listed stock, uh, when you compare, you know, many of these other businesses like a HubSpot, Zendes, Light Person, you know, uh, valuation is uh, very attractive yep. um, for live chat. And, and as a result, even, you know, uh, the company has continued to keep this strategic review uh, option open. In fact, I just talked to them yesterday and they did confirm that it is still open. They haven't done anything. They're not doing anything in the foreseeable future, but uh, eventually um, either they relist here and get um, their multiples revalued or they become a target. Right. 
no, it's a, tr- it's a tremendous business. And anybody that wants to start exploring Poland, I would recommend starting with live chat um, because it's, it's, again, it's an incredible business, like you said. And one of the other things that you touched on that's important is the talent that they have there. Not only is it very high talent, but given the geography and where they are, they can actually pay that high talent a lot less on an incremental basis compared to, say, Zendesk or live person where they've got headquarters in Silicon Valley and the salaries are significantly higher, which at the end of the day that, you know, runs, runs through the income statement. And so um, live chat's able to generate higher incremental margins for the same, if not better talent that they use. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and but on the other hand, on the side of the coin, uh, they do acknowledge that as a result of um, the larger outside world recognizing the tech talent there, uh, salaries have gone up, continue to go up. And in fact, that is their biggest challenge today. The biggest challenge is finding talent and retaining that. Company is not in the habit of uh, using stock option is a compensation tool. Yep. In fact, I verified that they don't want to do it. Um, and as a result, um, you know, finding talent and retaining them is a challenge, but you're right, you know, relative to what these other businesses are playing or paying, they are able to get better talent at better price. Correct. And this has been a terrific conversation and we've covered the whole gamut from your past life working in M&A to starting the fund to your fireside state of the investment universe chats with Chris Mayer and touching on two XUS, but very, very impressive uh, stock ideas. So I'm going to end the conversation with, you know, kind of the questions that I ask everybody and you in particular, because I, I, I believe you're one of the most underfollowed people on Twitter. Um, one of my goals with this podcast is to try to get these incredibly smart, talented thinkers and investors to share their stories with a wider audience than they currently have. And I hope that this podcast will do something similar. So first, where can people go to find out more about you? I know that you're on Twitter. So throughout your Twitter handle, and then maybe any emails or websites that you want to link out to. Sure. Um, Yeah. My Twitter handle is SVN Capital. Um, I have a website where I post um, on a frequent basis, um, not quite as uh, regularly as, say, Chris Mayer or other managers, but uh, that website is also www.svncapital.com, and my email is shri at svncapital.com. Awesome. And then the last question that I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with someone from the past or present, who would it be and why? Huh? Interesting question. Does it have to be with? Does it have to be within the world of investing? Nope. It can be any anybody ever in history. <laughs> well, this person is alive. Um, I'd say it's David Godman. He's okay. got nothing to do with investing. Yep. Um, and allow me to digress a little bit, and we'll wrap this up quick. Um, I'm originally, as you know, I'm originally from India, but from a very early uh, age, I've always been interested in the spiritual aspect of life. And I've tried a variety of different uh, types of meditation methodologies. And uh, for the last seven plus years now, um, I've been following a slightly different version 
which is uh, a method called self-inquiry. And this comes from a great sage who lived in South India, passed away in 1950. Um, his name is uh, Bhagwan Ramana Maharshi. Uh, it's a complicated, involved subject. I don't want to take this investment podcast into spiritual podcast. But uh, the idea is to be able to um, is to be able to control the ego. You know, the ego is the source of most problems, and particularly for what we do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, ego is where um, you know investment problems emanate, and um, and so um, the idea is to do what is called self inquiry. And uh, the art of self-inquiry is to figure out, is to ask that question, who am I? Who are you? And um, while this sage passed away in 1950, David Godman, who's alive, who actually lives in South India, right now he's living in Perth, Australia because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, He's written a number of different books. He has written extensively about um, the actual exercise of doing this self-inquiry, a lot about this sage and many other people who have followed the sage's advice. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, um, his ability to articulate ideas in a very easily understood manner and uh, his uh, knowledge base about this specific method of um, controlling the ego, I would love to sit down with David Cardin. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Um, I'm going to look him up, see if there's any books that you would recommend. Um, do you have any books? DavidGodman.org is the website. Okay. Cool. But um, um, before you even um, spend time going through there, one of the uh, recommendations I would make is a book called Search in Secret India. Uh, um by one Mr. Paul Brunton. He was a Brit. He wrote the book in the 40s or 50s, 1940s or 50s, a fantastic book. Awesome. And um, soon after you read that, if you go to davidgodman.org, you'll know what I'm talking about. Sounds good. Well, Shree, thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I got a lot smarter today, and I know that everyone listening will as well. Um, I hope you get a lot more follows on Twitter because your wisdom is much appreciated on the platform. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Have a great rest of your year. Appreciate this, uh, Brandon. Thanks a lot for that uh, uh, glorious uh, recommendation and uh, appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.